Episode number seven, Thoughts on Poetic Memory. I had a crush starting in junior high that went all through high school with a boy in my class named Robert Kincaid. He was what would be considered the most popular boy in school, captain of the football team, class president, yearbook king, handsome, likable, etc., etc. He was also basically a married child with the same girl through all those years that he eventually married. They are still married, so nobody else ever had a chance. One of my fond girl memories of Robert was in Mrs. Hayworth's language arts class. This would be seventh grade, which I know exactly because while I don't remember which year I had Mrs. Hayworth, there is a song that defines that year. I will explain in a moment. Also, Mrs. Hayworth signed my 1975 yearbook. Sean, you have the ability to do many great things. Good luck, Mrs. Hayworth. Mrs. Hayworth gave us this assignment of bringing a song to class to play and then discussing it as poetry. It's a typical English teacher move uh, to try to appeal to the young, jaded minds, get them to read poetry. Well, I say typical, but really, not many teachers would actually do it. I don't remember the song I brought. I, I really wish I did. But I do remember Robert's. It was Minnie Ripperton's Loving You, which was a number one single in 1975. For all you young folks listening, that means people bought a ton of these little records. They were called 45s, with one song on one side and another song on the other side. Now, <clears throat> if you're familiar with this song and ever just look at the lyrics, you would not know how it could have ever been a number one song. Okay, let me just quote some of the lyrics. Loving you is easy because you're beautiful. Making love with you is all I want to do. Loving you is more than just a dream come true. And everything I do is out of loving you. La, 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 la. Do, 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 do. Okay, you get the picture there. Well, wait a minute. Now, let me read a little more. No one else can make me feel the colors that you bring. Stay with me while we grow old, and we will live each day in springtime. Because loving you has made my life so beautiful, and every day of my life is filled with loving you. Loving you, I see your soul come shining through, and every time that we, ooh, I'm more in love with you. La, 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 okay. All right, actually, I'm not sure what Robert would have possibly discussed about this song's lyrics that was poetic. Though, you know, it does rhyme, and there was some hint of metaphor with living our days in the springtime. I'm not sure if he discussed the line, and every time that we, ooh, probably not. This song actually starts with the, the sounds of birds singing, which continues throughout the song. Now, that was kind of cool. But then when Minnie Ripperton starts singing, you see why it's a hit. What a voice. I had to look up how you would describe it. She was known for having a, quote, five-octave coloratura soprano range. I also read that she was widely known for her use of what was called the whistle register. It's a lovely, high, and clear voice. Not being a musician, that's the only way I would describe it. When she does that ah, 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 ah line, I swear glass is breaking somewhere, but in a good way. 
The song was written by Ripperton and Richard Rudolph, and who was her husband, and co-produced by Stevie Wonder, which is probably partly why it was such a success. Here's a side note. Ripperton died of cancer. She was only 31, and her daughter is the actor and comedian Maya Rudolph. Okay, so all I remember is that song playing on the little square teacher record player on this table by the window, and Robert standing there, and the birds singing, and the music, and that voice filling the air. I will never forget that classroom. I snuck inside a few years ago just before they tore down the building, and I walked the halls and stood for a while in that room. I grew up in a town and went to school for 12 straight years with the same people, for the most part. That kind of experience makes a huge impression on a person's whole life. People who move a lot in childhood or go from school to school probably just can't appreciate what the experience is like. You don't just forget these people when you go off and perhaps never see them again. We spent a huge chunk of our lives in school, in classrooms, with the same people over and over. We remember odd moments of our school days, and this is one of them. There has to be a reason I remember it. It really was nothing special. There were so many other things that happened when I was growing up, in school and elsewhere. I can only guess that this memory sticks with me because one, I experienced unrequited love with this guy, and two, that song is poetry. Looking through all my faded pieces of notebook and typing paper with my old poetry on it, I find there are only a few left that I haven't mentioned in earlier podcasts that were probably written in junior high. As I've said, high school is when my poem writing went into full crazy mode. Now here's one that was written on a loose leaf, wide ruled notebook paper. It's only six lines long and it has no title. I start off writing it in print with carefully drawn letters, but in the middle of the second line, I switched to cursive writing with the words, with love. And so, as the twilight coated the earth with love, and the moon became a gypsy's crystal ball, I will remember you, for you are not here. Okay, so I bet I thought that was an incredible poem. And maybe it's, it is for a junior high girl. Well, not so much. But I must have liked it enough to put it inside something, a folder and a book or a notebook, and have it survive after all this time. It has the typical nonsense that many of us think is poetry. Those ending lines, I will remember you, for you are not here. That, what does that, that means nothing. There was another inspiring song of the 70s, and it was by Bobby Sherman. It was his 1970 hit, Julie, Julie, Julie. I had a friend down on Snake Creek named Peggy, Peggy Weaver. She had an older sister named Julie. And this is a poem I wrote when I was in college based on a memory from a time I was at the Weaver's house and we were listening to that record. It's titled simply Julie. In the poem, there's a reference to a man named Mr. Harden. He was an old bachelor who lived next door to us. He walked with a cane and would sometimes play this game with us where he 
would sit at the one corner outside on his, his house and we would run around the corner as close as we could to it and he would try to hook our ankle with his cane and we won if we escaped. It sounds really weird describing it, but you know, recreation back in the day, we were hard up. One perfect summer day, Mr. Hardin gave us two oatmeal cookies apiece and played boogeyman with his cane all afternoon. Julie kept swinging her blonde pigtails and saying, Bobby Sherman did so write that song for her because she had a letter from him. And besides, silly, the song goes, Julie, 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 do you love me? Julie, 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 do you care? Julie, Julie, are you thinking of me? Julie, Julie, will you soon be there? And we almost believed her one perfect summer day. I believe all my childhood years built up the fodder for a healthy and happy life that I came to know. The main problems I ever had were just getting locked out of the house when the babysitter came over so she could watch TV without being bothered. Or when I was throwing tantrums because I had to do the dishes, which I don't know why I did that. We three girls always had to do the dishes. I'm not sure why I thought I would ever get out of it. I mean, that wasn't going to happen. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had enough to be fed well and live comfortably. We didn't really go anywhere to be spending money anyway. It was a very rare occasion to go to Tossa or even prior, 12 miles away, for that matter. I ate a lot of peanut butter and spent inordinate amounts of time outside in the mud and the grass and the woods and the fields and the creeks. I was pretty much always dirty. As I mentioned before, we moved to town when I was 10 or 11, and then I spent more time at the town park and also on my bike, exploring everything. I would ride my bike a few miles out of town, too, to a place called Twin Bridges in the summer. This was the next best swimming hole to the dip down there on Snake Creek for me. At Twin Bridges, there were two low-water bridges that the water ran over. At one bridge, the water was deep enough to swim in, and there were plenty of places to park, and this is where the moms and the kids went because there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of bank space, so you could set out chairs and a blanket and stay there all day, and the littlest ones could walk right into the water, and it wasn't very deep. Now the other bridge in the area around it was a lot more overgrown, and you had to walk back away from the road and down the bank quite a bit to get to the swimmable water, but there was a really good swimming hole down there. This is the swimming hole I refer to in that poem about my cousin, Luann. We were swimming down there one day when these two guys came out of the woods and started talking to us. One was a guy from high school that I knew. He was three or four years older than us, and the other guy was his cousin from out of town. I think he was even older. Across the creek down there, there was an abandoned rock house. We swam across the creek and over to the bank, and the four of us walked up the bank uh, to the house. And as soon as we got over there, I knew I didn't want to be there. Luann wanted to stay, so I left her there with them and ran down the bank and across the creek to get my things. 
I don't remember anything happening to me, but I do remember being scared. <coughs> I grabbed my towel and I started running back to the bridge. When I got there, I realized I didn't have my glasses. I've worn glasses since sixth grade and I'm pretty blind without them. I didn't want to go wander back down to the creek without them, but I had to find them. Two cousins of one of my best friends, Sandy Bendabout, came along then, Ronald and Arnold, and they offered to help me look for my glasses. I have never been more grateful to see anyone than those two guys. They were three years at least, three years younger than me at least, but I didn't care. I wasn't alone. Ronald and Arnold were twins. They got in line with me and we walked slowly back along the bank searching for those glasses in the rocks and in the shallows right near the bank and between down tree branches. We didn't find them. The twins went to school in another town so I didn't see them very often. But four or five years later when I was a senior, Arnold agreed to be my date for the senior prom. We made a really handsome couple and had a good time. I was wearing sparkly orange prom dress that my grandmother had made and he had on a black tux with a matching orange shirt. Uh, we never dated. That was the only date we ever had to the prom. I have never forgotten his and his brother's kindness that day. For everyone who has a beautiful childhood, there are still moments of danger or caution, times of panic or fright, these events, they leave an imprint on us, but for reasons I don't know, they might not be any stronger than those moments like sitting in that classroom listening to that Minnie Ripperton song. The scary events, and even more serious ones, are sometimes the ones that our brains, were, our brains they just will set them aside or they'll lock away for a while. If real trauma occurred to someone, which it did not to me, this trauma can be recalled in later life and dealt with, or it, I, it should be anyway. There's this quote by Carl Jung that I like. It says, your vision will become clear only when you look into your own heart. Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakens. I think this idea holds true for poets too, and it's not that the poet has to then write solely about the things from her own inner life, but she does have to be aware of the integrity of her vision, both as a person and a poet, to write well. Now I'm not sure I believe in this uh, a concept of recovered memories, though we can certainly repress things for time. It is too easy to confuse an actual memory with something we've read or seen or heard about. Our minds are just fascinating receptacles. I'm pretty suspicious of some of the memories I have because I suspect I only remember certain things because I've seen photographs of them. I have no childhood photographs of Twin Bridges or the woods behind our house on Snake Creek or a few of the other houses we lived in before settling in the one in town on Delaware Street. So I am more prone to see the memories I do have of these places as true things. I have a bunch of old grainy Polaroids from a trip we took to Tahlequah to an old Civil War home, the Mural Home. 
and also some of a vacation at Greenleaf State Park near Muskogee. I have no memory of actually being at the mural home, and the only memory I have of Greenleaf is that I cried and threw a fit because we had to share beds in the small cabin. But these photographs show us doing a lot of things I have no memory of. For me, memory is of vital importance as a poet. Every poem, every minute of our lives, is not just about the present moment. It's about the past we bring into that present moment while we are on the verge of moving forward into the future. And also, the older you get, the more you're aware that it's your long-term memories, those from childhood, that are the strongest in your life. As a preteen and then a teenager, I was writing about immediate things. My poems were about things happening to me in real time. Actually, a better description is to say I was feeling the events in real time. The poems didn't have a great deal of personal detail. But what I imagined separated me from other teenagers who did not become poets was that I was aware that a certain level of concrete language, of sensory imagery, was necessary in order to write actual poetry. So what happened is that my preteen and teen poetry was emotionally honest and real, but the details were often made up, I actually most of the time made up. I somehow didn't believe that the actual details of my life were the stuff of poetry where I had no tools at that time for being able to fashion them into poetry. It would be uh, nice to see what I might have written, what I might have written about that Bobby Sherman song and my neighbor Julie claiming it as hers, if I had written it at the time and not a decade or so later. But I'm sure at the time it never occurred to me that that was a subject of poetry. It was about her, not me. And we all know what a child's universe, even a teenager's, is normally like. The world is there for her. It is a lucky child who can grow into an adult and see how she is there for the world. Rarer still is the poet who determines she is not only there for the world, but also there for the poem Like a true musician plays for the song, the true poet creates for the poem. The richness of my childhood memories gave me the tools to become a poet. I think about how lucky I am for the places and the people that shaped me as I was growing up. Not a lot of people get to have the very simple and plain but rich experiences my brother and sisters and I did. The places from my childhood where I caught a glimpse of danger were rare, yet they are the places that loom large too. That day the creek is one of the strongest memories of my junior high years. I was in the middle of that memory. Luann was even more in the middle of it, but do I know what actually happened to her that day? No, I never asked her about it, not that I can remember. And now, here's the truly, truly odd thing. I started riding my bike down to Twin Bridges in 1976. 
and then continued doing so until I was driving and I had a car. In 1977, just a mile or so, as a crow flies from that creek, one of the most horrible things to ever happen in Oklahoma took place. On June 13, in 1977, three Girl Scouts were murdered at Camp Scott, which it was just on the southern edge of Locust Grove, uh, a huge encampment exactly in between the Snake Creek dip we played in while growing up and the Spring Creek twin bridges I moved to in junior high. This was terrifying. The brutality and the senselessness of the crime, the deaths of three girls ages 8, 9, and 10 on the very first night of the camp, it was too awful to believe. And then if you were to believe that the suspect arrested and tried for the crime was the true murderer, you had to believe he lived in those woods along the creek hiding out in the caves and in relatives' homes in the area. Though Gene Leroy Hart was tried and found not guilty of the crimes, a man that he escaped from the county jail with twice, Larry Dry, said that he and Hart would often go to Twin Bridges to meet people who would give them supplies. Hart was on the lam from 1973 until he was captured in 1978. Most believe he was living right there in the Spring Creek area, south of Locust Grove, the whole time. Dry also claimed that Hart wanted to attack two girls they saw swimming at Twin Bridges one day, and the man said he talked him out of it. Hart is buried in Baloo Cemetery, which is just up the road a bit west from Twin Bridges. I'm not going to go into the crimes, which are unsolved to this day, but in doing this podcast and looking back through all my writing, I really find it odd that I wrote absolutely nothing about this. Not one word remains with all the thousands of other words I have collected that mentions it. I do have a story written on the entire front and back of one page of paper that is dated September 14, 1977. But it's such a poor story, I'm not going to read it. It's a strange little thing about driving around with all of my friends out in the country one day and being attacked by a man who had been under the hood of the car and having a mountain lion eat one of us and then going inside a cave where this man burns off one of my finger uh, one of my friend's toenails. It ends with us finding a magic lamp and making a wish that we are all transported to Hollywood with I quote, a limousine, lots of money, and a castle with a swimming pool. I don't know why I wrote nothing about the actual murders. All I can imagine is it did not touch my life. It was not about me. In many ways, it is utterly ruthless to be a child, to be controlled by one's ego to the extent that it's hard to envision the life of another who may have it worse. And this is also true. We write about the emotional impact of an event without using its details. Maybe even this dumb story was a way of dealing with the feelings the murders evoked in me. On September 14, 1977, the suspect was still at large, and everyone was still in a panic, locking their doors and staying home at night. 
I would have gotten my driver's license in 1978, so I no longer rode my bike to the creek. I still rode my bike, but not there. I'm going to end with something I wrote as an adult, though I don't know when. It's typed on thin paper, yellowed with age. I recognize the type as coming from this brown electric IBM typewriter I used to use in college. It was very heavy, loud, and fast, and I loved it. I'm guessing this is from the late 80s when I would have been in my uh, mid-20s. It is not a poem, but it is, it's just one page of writing which appears to be a kind of story that reveals that sense of nothingness that can pervade one's days as it did mine. So much so that even when something as traumatic as multiple murder happened practically in our backyard, I didn't write about it. This is untitled. The summer of 72, Karen believed, like Chicken Little, that the sky was falling. Peggy was 14 and so involved in writing her little poems and burying ants and spiders in matchboxes in her backyard cemetery that she wouldn't listen to Karen's ranting. It was Tim's last summer at home before he went away to college and he was busy saying long, sweet goodbyes to his girlfriend, Jody. Kenneth, only five, spent his days making mud pies in the dirt. My husband, Sam, had shoveled into a pile near the front porch. Kenneth listened to Karen. He listened to everyone. The idea of the sky falling was enchanting to him. He waited for it to float down on him like the cool flannel sheets I covered him with every night. The summer of 72 was a comfortable one. Comfortable, not in terms of the weather. The sun chased us like a mad dog into our air-conditioned homes. But comfortable because of its reliability. We relied on its monotony. Monotony being a good feeling for some reason. So much was happening everywhere besides Lone Creek, Oklahoma, that there didn't seem much left for our little town our little world. It was like the important things going on in the world just sucked away all the activity from the small places like Lone Creek. Sam got a raise at the gas company. I put in another chair at my beauty shop. We didn't have any major accidents, only skinned knees, bumped heads, occasional mosquito bites, no childhood crises, no unwanted pregnancies or pets. The summer of 72 held no surprises for us. We didn't even catch a rattler in the cellar when we did the canning, and I had begun to think that that was a yearly event. The drought that was supposed to ruin the wheat crops never happened, and to Karen's great relief, the sky didn't fall.